Okay, so every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my open-air pulpits. Last Sunday, I was able to record Acts 26, and God willing, tomorrow, I will be able to start Acts 27. It's been a great blessing for me to look at the book of Acts over the past 13 months, and Lord willing, I think I'm on course to finish Acts 28 by July the 31st. So, if you are praying for me, please continue to do so. But for this morning, I want to recap some verses from Acts 22, 23, and 24. But before I get to Acts 22, take a look at Acts 21, verse 40. When he gave them license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with a hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Comma. And this is the only place in the Word of God where a comma ends one chapter and another chapter begins straight after a comma. And when I looked at this passage some weeks ago, I thought to myself, I wonder if any of the other Bibles before the King James came out also had a comma end a chapter. As far as grammar is concerned, it's somewhat unusual, if not unorthodox, to end a verse and a chapter with a comma. And lo and behold, the Geneva Bible does this. The great Bishop's Bible does this. And even some of the Catholic Bibles, I might add, also follow the lead. So I don't know which was the first Bible to have a comma and a chapter, but the King James has followed along the same lines of all of the other Bibles. But here Paul has been given license to speak to the people, and he does so in Hebrew. And I'm going to call this message, The Hunter is Now Hunted. Because Paul, before he got saved, was a hunter. Paul, before he got saved, would interrogate Christians, torture Christians, and force Christians to blaspheme. And Paul was a great hunter. And before he got saved, he was a good picture of the Antichrist. But as I like to say, in the intelligence world, he was turned. Or, as the Word of God would say, he got converted. Look at 22 verse 1. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense, which I make now unto you. Men, brethren, and fathers. And yet you were told, from Matthew 23, to call no man on earth your father. Simply uh, referring to one who wants to be known as a father in a spiritual sense, like rabbi. But of course, if you have a physical father, then you can call him father. But when it comes to clerical titles, you shouldn't call somebody father or rabbi. And here Paul, as a son of Israel, as a son from the tribe of Benjamin, is addressing his crowd, if you will, in Hebrew, not Greek. And that's why he says, men, brethren, and fathers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But one more time, if you think it's okay to call somebody Father Brown, for example, or Rabbi Cohen, for example, then according to Matthew 23, that is not permitted. It's out of order. Because you have one Rabbi being Christ, and you have one Father being Almighty God, of course. But here Paul takes the position of a defense lawyer. And I guess if I was to assess the UK over the last 50 years and uh, take a look at those from the legal realm, 
and uh, pick out one great barrister, one great lawyer, I would say probably George Carman was one of the best lawyers that the UK ever had and he would defend and he would also prosecute. But if you got him as a defense lawyer, then you knew that your client was almost certainly going to walk it, as they say. But here Paul is now having to give a defense of himself. And this crowd of unbelieving Jews, if they could, would kill him. Look at verse 2. When they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept them all silence. And he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and told according to the perfect man of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as you all are this day. Yes, you were, Paul. You were very zealous. And yes, Paul, you were raised in organized religion. And yes, Paul, you sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and you were taught much truths about organized religion. And yet Gamaliel couldn't get you saved. And Mother Teresa would, every evening, sit down and open her books and teach her young nuns about Catholicism. And they would sit at her feet, adoring her. And yet, Teresa never once preached the gospel. And Gamaliel, an unsaved Jewish scholar, never once preached the gospel. Never gave you the plan of salvation because he wasn't saved. And he was also found back in Acts chapter 5. But you were told from John chapter 16 that many would come after the Lord's ascension in his name and do many terrible things in his name. But Paul was spoken of very clearly in John chapter 16 as an enemy of the Lord. Going around, arresting people, torturing people, and being indirectly responsible for certain people's death. Complicit in their death. Look at verse 4. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering to prisons both men and women. It's very hard to think that Paul would do such a thing, but of course he wasn't saved. He was very religious, he had a spirit of jealousy and envy and also of despair. His great fear, as would be, I guess, mirrored by some of his brethren, was that what's going to happen to Jewry? The early church were predominantly Jewish, and there was a great fear that if they didn't stamp on the way, if they didn't destroy the way, if they didn't put the way to death, it would spread, which of course it did. And they thought, if it spreads, we might lose our nation and influence, John chapter 11, which they did, and therefore we might cease to be the Lord's people. And here, Paul is giving you his testimony, how he persecuted this way unto the death, a term for the early church, this way, the way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, delivering into prisons, jails, both men and women. Stephen, of course, would be one of those victims. And also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. He's saying this. He's saying that if you want to put me on the spot, if you want to interrogate me, okay, fine, but I did it with the authority of the high priests, being Caiaphas and Co, and also the elders, in reference to the Sanhedrin, I got my arrest warrants from those individuals, and 
when it comes to paperwork, when it comes to arrest warrants, death warrants, detention orders, that was the fall of the Third Reich because they kept, they kept records of everything. This train is going to go here, this train is going to go there, X amount of Jews on this train, X amount of Jews on that train. And uh, when the war ended and the Allies met in Nuremberg, they needed to find irrefutable proof that the Third Reich were responsible for their crimes against humanity. And what caused the downfall of the Third Reich was their paperwork. They wrote everything down, so much so that in 1961, Mossad uh, finally found Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann. He'd been on the run for 15 or so years. And when they found him in, I think it's Argentina, from memory, they put him on a plane back to Israel. And they gave him a fair trial, unlike the Nazis gave to their victims. But the courts in Israel said that you've got to find irrefutable, infallible, unquestionable proof of Eichmann's guilt. And for weeks and months, as he was being interrogated, he said, no, I never did this, I never did that. It was all Himmler's fault, it was all Heydrich's fault. And eventually, after much hard work and investigations and research and checking all the paperwork, so on and so forth, they found a document which Himmler had signed, sent to Eichmann, and Eichmann countersigned it. And on that piece of paper, Eichmann gave the permission, gave the orders to transport many Jews, thousands of Jews, from Europe into the ovens, Poland to be precise, Auschwitz. And that was the downfall of the Third Reich. Well here Paul is saying that I got arrest warrants, verse 5. I didn't do this off my own back, and therefore if you're going to interrogate me, put the high priest on trial as well. And after World War II, they were able to put many Nazis in jail. Eichmann was hung in 61, 62 or thereabouts. But what the Nazis made the mistake of doing uh, when it came to writing everything down was noted by Joseph Stalin and his evil uh, regime. And he said to people like Berra, uh, Beria, excuse me, and Molotov, whatever you do, don't write anything down. And therefore Beria and Molotov were very careful not to make the same mistake that the Third Reich made. On top of that, Saddam Hussein didn't want to get caught with paperwork. And that was the downfall of the Third Reich. Well, here Paul is almost saying the same kind of thing, that he had the authority, he had arrest warrants from those in organized religion to do what he was doing. Look at verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having good reports of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me and stood, and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. People say that you're not saved until you get baptized. But here you've got a picture, description, an account of Saul of Tarsus, cross-reference it back to Acts chapter 9, who's been knocked off his horse, and he's blind physically, and the Lord has said to Paul, sit tight, I'm going to send somebody to you. And Ananias arrives and says to Saul of Tarsus before he is baptized, Brother Saul. He's calling him Brother Saul. Brother Saul, you're a saved man. Receive thy sight physically and perhaps spiritually as well. And the same hour I looked up upon him. So this piece of scripture shows very clearly to me that 
you're not saved by getting baptized because here Paul hasn't yet been baptized. In fact, here Paul isn't even referred to as being Paul. He's been referred to here as Saul, his Jewish name. Look at 14. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. Paul, or Saul, the God of our fathers, the one true God, Elohim, Jehovah, Adonai, Kulios, or as I like to tell people, Jesus Christ, hath chosen thee. I know that Calvinists will come along and say, there you are, you see, Saul was chosen for salvation. Well, hold on. He too had to hear the gospel to some extent. I mean, he'd heard it indirectly from those that he'd been detaining, torturing, and yet he got many to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet those people still gave a testimony. So I wonder if many seeds were planted up until Acts chapter 9. But from Acts chapter 9, the Lord knocks him off his horse. And the first thing that Saul says to the Lord is, Lord, what we have me to do? That's a picture of Paul acknowledging the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But on top of this piece of scripture from verse 14, I think that it's fair to say that Paul has been chosen for service specifically that thou shouldest know his will. Didn't he just know that? And see that just one. Now Paul got to physically see the risen Christ, but we haven't seen the risen Christ. We are blessed for not seeing the risen Christ. We are saved by faith, not by sight. So when it says here that he would see that just one and should just hear the voice of his mouth, it means just that. Because Christ would appear on several occasions to Paul, and I mean physically, and Christ would speak in an audible voice to Paul on several occasions, whereas we live by faith, not by sight. So there's a great difference between the apostles and those of us living today. Look at verse 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now you know that you can't be saved by being baptized. And if you needed to have a mind of that, just go back to Luke 23, where the thief is hanging on a cross. And he turns around to the Lord and says, Lord, remember me when you come, or when you come into your kingdom. Lord, just remember me. And Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not when you have been to the great white throne judgment, but today will you be with me in paradise. The thief believed on the Lord and as a result was saved. So when it says here, and why tarriest thou? Why are you delaying? Arise. Now that word arise is a call to do something. And I'm going to say this this morning that you need to personally appropriate the atonement. Bit of a mouthful, but it means this, that you need to personally receive Christ's offer of everlasting life. Never mind saying your parents are saved or your wife or your husband is saved. You need to personally appropriate the atonement. You need to personally believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And it's like this, and I've given this analogy before, and I'll give it again very briefly, that if I was to put £10 into your bank account and tell you that I put £10 into your bank account, and you were to say to me, well, thank you very much, James, uh, that's very generous of you, 
and not withdraw it, even though you desperately need that money, it would be an affront to me. On top of that, it's not going to benefit you. It won't benefit you until you receive it and spend it. And that's what salvation is all about. So when it says here, arise, I'm going to say this, that we're going to apply this to Paul appropriating the atonement. And be baptized and wash away thy sins. Not in a physical sense, of course, in a spiritual sense. Calling on the name of the Lord. So you arise, you appropriate the atonement, which again is what I said last time from Romans chapter 4, justification, the sights of God, and be baptized, total immersion, which is justification in the sight of man, James chapter 2, and wash away thy sins in a spiritual sense, only the blood of Christ can do that in a literal sense, calling, humbling yourself, submitting yourself on the name of the Lord, being Jehovah, of course. So Paul was no exception. And yes, it's true that the Lord had to knock him off his horse to get his attention, that's true. And yet, I still retain the view that Paul heard the gospel from those that he had been detaining, and seeds were planted, and yet it took divine intervention to bring Paul finally to salvation. But nevertheless, he has to arise, he has to be baptized, and he has to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. The Lord won't do that for you. Now, he will give you repentance, he will draw you unto himself, he will give you the grace to be saved and to live for him, but he expects you to personally appropriate that. He expects you to do that yourself. What do they say? The Lord helps those that help themselves. How true that is. So you have to help yourself. You have to believe yourself. I don't believe in this Calvinist doctrine that God... Uh, uses what's called irresistible grace, that somehow he pours out his love on the uh, potential sinner to get saved, the potential believer, and that love is so great that it can't be resisted. I don't believe that. All the greats in the Old Testament, those that were saved, were always resisting the Holy Ghost. And I showed you from Acts 7 some weeks ago how uh, it says how you are stiff-necked people, how you were always resisting the Holy Ghost. You won't come to me that you might have life, not that you can't come to me, but that you won't come to me. You see, this has always been a heart problem, not a head problem. If the truth be known, you know that you're no good, and you know that somebody has to do something for you to be saved, and yet that is what causes so much uh, indifference amongst some people. That's what causes so many problems amongst those that are not saved. You mean to tell me I've got to believe in a man? You mean to tell me I've got to trust in a Jewish carpenter? You mean to tell me I've got to trust in a Roman crucifixion? Yeah, that's right. Because God has chosen the foolish things of the, of the wise, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that perish. But to those of us which are saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And that's what I came up against when I went to Speaker's Corner last month. Many people there debating, arguing, like Mars Hill, and people thought it was foolishness for us to preach Christ crucified. And yet, God has said, I've, I've chosen that method. I've chosen something which you couldn't have imagined in order to save people. I told Noah to build a boat, and they all laughed at him. I told Noah to get into that boat, and they all laughed at him. I told Noah to put his family 
and many animals into that boat, and they all laughed at him. And yet when the floods came from above and beneath, they weren't laughing then. And I told Lot to try and preach against Sodom and Gomorrah, and I sent my angels to preach against that way of life, and they were all laughing. Even Lot's daughters thought he had lost his mind. And yet when fire came down from heaven and destroyed all of those individuals, including the wife of Lot, they weren't laughing then. And when Christ hung on a cross, they were walking around saying, if he be the Son of God, come down from the cross. He believed in God, maybe God can now save him, mocking him, laughing at him. The two thieves, one was blaspheming him, the other was listening, the other was very much biding his time. And even the centurion would tell you, truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was a righteous man. But more importantly, truly this was the Son of God. So when we do things as Bible believers, many times we are laughed at. And yet, what is the alternative? You're going to trust your works? You're going to be a good Catholic? Go to Mass every day? Pray to Mary? Think about this one moment, if you will. And I'm talking to Catholics now. You believe, do you not, that when you pray to Mary, she can hear you? And therefore, if she can hear you, she can hear all of you. And if there are, what, 1.6 billion Catholics around the world, are we to seriously believe that when they all pray simultaneously to Mary, a billion, or let's say half a billion, or let's say 250 million, or let's say 100 million Catholics, are we to honestly believe that every time 100 million Catholics around the world, seven days a week, praying to Mary that she can hear them and on top of that she can answer their prayers doesn't that sound like deity to you? the Bible says that God won't share his glory with anybody and that includes Mary when you go down on your knees Mr. Catholic or Mrs. Catholic when you get your rosary beads out my Catholic friend and you say the rosary you call on Mary's name you are doing so with the belief that she can hear you that she can answer you you are trusting in her to intercede for you and that is a blasphemy, because you were told very clearly from 1 Timothy how there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. If she could hear you, if Mary could hear all of those prayers simultaneously and answer all of those prayers simultaneously, then she'd have to be God, and she's not. Then we look at our Muslim friends, and they were firing questions at us at Speaker's Corner, and... They would have us believe that Jesus was just a good man, but no more than that. And they would have us believe that Muhammad was greater than Jesus. And yet, when you look at the lifestyle of Muhammad, marrying a little girl, taking his son-in-law's daughter for his own, taking concubines for himself, compared to Christ, who never did such a thing. When you look at Muhammad, who said that if you fall asleep praying, Satan will urinate, all over you, or if you are a disobedient Muslim and go to sleep, as a result of not praying, Satan sleeps in your nose. These are Islamic facts from the Hadith, Islam's second holiest book. Now, if you want to follow Muhammad, if he even existed, that's up to you. But keep in mind what it said to you. Marrying Aisha, nine years, having many concubines, persecuting people, killing people, compared to Christ, who never killed anybody. In fact, Christ told you to pray for your enemies. And yet, if you are Muslim and you fall asleep 
whilst you pray, according to the Hadith, Satan will urinate all over you. And when you sleep, according to Islam, Satan sleeps in your nose. Look at verse 21, please. And he said unto me, Depart, for I'll send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Paul, you're going to go far. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. Yes, the apostles would also go out of Jerusalem, but for the most part, it's going to be on your shoulders, Paul, to preach to Gentiles, kings, queens, governors. But that word Gentile causes a reaction from 22. And they gave him audience unto this word. And they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. There's a picture of contempt. There's a picture of discrimination. The Jews, for the most part, hated the Gentiles. If you were to speak to a Jew in the first century, they would say to you that a Gentile was an unclean animal. And therefore the thought of the Jewish Messiah having Gentiles that were part of his fold was abhorrent to them. And yet Christ would tell you that from John chapter 10, how you how would have other flock that were not yet of his fold. And the Mormons come along and they say, well, that is in reference to us. No, that's in reference to the Gentiles. Most of those that got saved in the Gospels were Jews. So when Paul says, I will... Or when Paul is quoting, the Lord is saying, I'm going to send you unto the Gentiles. They thought, whoa, put the brakes on, Paul. Now you really are a traitor. Now you really are somebody who we despise. You see, Paul was very much like Moses. Moses was raised in royalty, and he watched the children of Israel suffering for 400 years, although he wasn't that old when he got saved, you understand, but he witnessed his people suffering for many years. And they didn't know that Moses was a Jew until he stepped forward and stepped into an altercation when he saw two people fighting and killed a man, murdered a man. And yet the Lord still chose him for service. The Lord still used him. Nevertheless, never once was Moses told to repent of that murder. But the Jews at times were suspicious of Moses. He's not one of us. He hasn't been a slave. And the same is true of Paul. The apostle. He's been detaining people, he's been an enemy of the church, he's been a raving lunatic wanting to kill many Christians. So the early church was somewhat suspicious of him, and that's fair enough. But the Jews thought he was a traitor, and that's why it concludes in 22, away with such a fellow from the earth. And that word fellow or fella used in uh, working class circles in the UK hey fella, what's happening? Now I'm a Londoner, I was born in London, and if I was to speak about a fella, I knew a fella, or I knew a geezer, as they say on the streets, then you know you're speaking about somebody who's either of questionable character, or somebody who is part of your manner. Now this is slang, which may not mean much to our American brethren, but if you are an Englishman, you know what I'm saying. They're saying, this fella? Who does this fella think he is? We won't have this fella to reign over us. It's a picture of contempt. Away with such a fella from the earth. Why? If it's not fit that he should live. But why are you saying that? Well, because they hated the Gentiles. They were suspicious of the Gentiles. They were worried that the Gentiles would have placed them as the people of God, and they did. You've got 30 AD, Christ hanging on a cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. He's drawn all people unto him, and for 40 years, he is working through the early church, which were predominantly Jewish, to get people saved. And up until 70 AD, the Lord has allowed the Jewish believers to keep the Sabbath, to keep the feast days, to go into the temple. In fact, you were told at the end of, I think it's Mark's Gospel, or maybe Luke's Gospel, how they went daily into the temple rejoicing. That temple was the pinnacle of Israel, the center of the world to Israel. And therefore the Lord said, okay, I'll let you retain that temple. I'm, I'm going to give you 40 years, but if you haven't received me as a group, as a corporate group of people, as a nation, if you, the people of Israel, if you, the Jews, don't receive my son by 70 AD, you're going to be knocked down. And it was, and they were dispersed. And I put it to you this morning that from 70 AD up until the rapture comes, we are the people of God. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, according to Galatians chapter 3, there's no such thing. Once you are born again, you are a saved sinner. You're not a Gentile anymore, nor are you a Jew. And yet, once the rapture comes, Revelation chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Almighty God turns back to Israel, and he sends the two witnesses to preach for three and a half years. But between 70 AD and the rapture, we are the people of the Lord, known, of course, as the church. Look at verse 30, please. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. That word council is in reference to the Sanhedrin, a group of Jewish men who pretty much ruled Israel with a rod of iron. And whenever you find the word council in a scripture, you're dealing with a, a group of unsaved, hostile individuals. Bible believers don't have councils. There's a conference spoken about from uh, Galatians chapter 2 concerning an event which took place in Acts chapter 15, but a council per se isn't something which is ever relevant to save people. But it says how the chief priests wanted to interrogate Paul. And on top of that, this Roman uh, chief captain would like to know the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews. He's saying to himself, what's going on here? Why are these Jews infuriated with Paul? Why do they want to kill him? What is going on? And therefore Paul has been bound. The hunter has been bound. The hunter is being hunted. And yet if I know Paul, he's as cool as a cucumber. He's going to use this event to give a testimony of the Lord. He's going to use this event to glorify the Lord. And that's a great picture, is it not, of you and I, if we ever find ourselves having to be interrogated by those in organized religion. 23, verse 1, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And he thought that he had done. But go back to John chapter 16. Christ would tell us that people such as Paul would think they were doing God a service, and yet they weren't doing God a service. They were enemies of the Lord. 
and Muhammad thought he was doing Allah a service, the Catholic Church thought they were doing God a service, Hindus in India think they are doing their gods, plural, a service when they kill people, when they persecute people and they do so because they are enemies of the Lord. But as Paul earnestly beholding the council, the Jewish Sanhedrin, not in reference to the church but a group of unsaved Jews, he wants to lay his case out. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Smack Paul across the face, physically assault Paul. And I'll say this to you, that if you are a brother in the Lord, if you do street work, you will find people <coughs> on occasions who want to push you. And they want to get you to retaliate. And you need to keep your call. And yet I'll say this, sometimes that's not particularly easy. I was in Croydon last month doing some outreach with our brothers and sisters from three countries. And it was a great uh, opportunity to do such outreach. And we gave out many tracts, spoke to many people, gave out Bibles and DVDs. And the banner was seen by many people. But I had two altercations with two individuals. One was an unsaved South African man who walked past and made a very crude and derogatory remark about my God. And he used a term which, although it's biblical, I shan't repeat it. And because of my old nature, just like that, I responded with the same terminology which he used. Now, technically, the word that I used wasn't a swear word, and it is found in scripture, but nevertheless, it wasn't a wise thing for me to do. It was the old nature, see. And he looked, he looked uh, somewhat shocked that I would say such a thing. And then I thought to myself, well, if you push someone enough, a safe person, this is what can occur. It shouldn't occur, but it can occur. And then about 10 minutes before that event, a pastor, quote unquote, walked over towards us and he looked at our new banner and he said, uh, this is a very negative uh, message. This is a very negative thing to be doing. And I said to him, do you warn people in Croydon about hell? I mean, do you warn people about God's judgment? And do you warn people that if they don't repent, they're going to burn? And he said, no, I don't do that. And you can watch the video, it's online if you haven't seen it. And I thought, it's just typical. This is so typical of an apostate who does church, does religion, speaks to the choir every week. Nobody ever challenges him. And yet he would come up to me in the middle of Croydon and critique me, interrogate me, uh, challenge me, which I don't particularly mind. And yet that coward, that hypocrite, that imbecile wouldn't turn around among people in Croydon about their need to be saved. In fact, I watched a chap in Croydon during that same day spend 45 minutes witnessing or challenging, debating with a Muslim. And I was watching this event during our own outreach and it didn't, I didn't realize until afterwards that that person was a professing Christian. And this person spent 45 minutes going back and forward, back and forward with a Muslim, trying to score points over this Muslim. And I thought to myself, during those 45 minutes, maybe 2,000 people have walked past who aren't saved, 
who don't know the gospel, who don't know about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would much rather spend 45 minutes going back and forth with a Muslim. Now, sometimes you can do that. And yet, what I do when I'm on the streets is I'm giving out tracts. And I'm saying gospel message, Bible tract, and I'm still continuing a conversation with somebody who I think might be interested. But watch this piece of scripture from verse 3. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten, contrary to the law. Paul's being smacked across the face, and just like that, his old nature kicks in, and he retaliates with his tongue, like I did in Croydon last month. And yet when Christ was slapped across the face, when Christ was interrogated, he didn't say a word, because he's sinless. And yet, if you were to criticize Muhammad, he would not only come back at you, he would put you to death. God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. There's a picture of the old nature in the Apostle Paul. For sittest thou to judge me after the law? Now Paul knew the law inside out, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. Look at verse 4. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? You speak to God's high priest like this? Now technically Paul was in the wrong, as I was in Croydon last month when I responded against that blasphemous remark from the South African gentleman. But I'm the first to say that I've got an old nature. And if you've seen these videos over the last nine years, you know that we believe, Patrick and I, that we have old natures. We've always said that. I have an old nature. You have an old nature. I'm not going to be one of those pious individuals who would give the impression that all is rosy 24-7. But like here, when Paul gets challenged in verse 4, I had to apologise to my group in Croydon, and most of them weren't even aware of what I had said, but I wanted to make it clear that I was in the wrong. And here Paul also is going to apologise, and it takes a real man, a real Christian, man or woman, to apologise when you've done wrong. Then said Paul, I wish not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Had I known he was the ruler of the people, I wouldn't have said what I said. And yet Paul's old nature on this occasion got the better of him. My old nature last month in Croydon got the better of me. Paul's probably tired. I was tired. Paul was probably um, stressed due to the detention, the interrogation. I was stressed due to 14 days of consecutive outreach work, day and night, standing on the streets, not knowing who or what is going to come my way. And that's why most people in organized religion never experience this type of flack, this type of criticism, this type of hostility, because they are preaching to the choir. But you go into the streets, and if you do this, you will experience the same sort of persecution. Also, I think it's interesting, uh, reading these verses, in fact, I'll give you verse 6 and I'll move on. And when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm called in question. When Paul had perceived the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, wouldn't he have known that such uh, a group were present? Wouldn't he have seen that one were 
Sadducees, you know, the Pharisees. What's going on here? Well, he's partly blind. Paul is partially blind. Paul was losing his eyesight. And he would tell you, I think it's over in uh, Galatians, how had it been possible that Galatians would have given their eyes to Paul because he was almost blind. So ask yourself this, if Paul was almost blind before he died, and this verse suggests that his eyesight is seriously diminishing here, then why didn't he heal himself? Why didn't Peter heal him? Why didn't John heal him? And yet you know, do you, uh, you know, don't you, if you are a Bible reader, that Paul couldn't heal himself, he couldn't heal Timothy of ulcers, he couldn't heal Trophimus of his ailments as well. And yet I listen to Mormons and Catholics who believe that their leaders are apostles, descendants. And yet, don't you know that an apostle has assigned gifts? Don't you know that the apostle can heal people, raise the dead? And yet, when was the last time you heard of a Mormon elder ever doing miracles? How about a pope? When was the last time you saw a pope do miracles? I mean real miracles that you can see in the flesh. I've watched videos or video reels over the years of people going to the Vatican with their sick people in wheelchairs, blind people, deaf people, people that are dying. And I watch these people arrive sick and leave sick. And I haven't yet witnessed any Pope say, in the name of Jesus Christ Nazareth, get up and walk. I haven't yet heard of any Mormon apostle say, in the name of Jesus Christ Nazareth, I say, get up and walk. Never once. They had to read about it many times. And actually, apostles, they can't do it, of course. They are Con men, they are fakers. So here Paul, partly blind, and once he realizes what is going on, he thinks to himself, maybe I've got a chance to get certain people here present saved. And yet, as you read through this piece of scripture, nobody gets saved. So if you are trying to get people saved and are struggling to get people saved, take heed, take delight in that. Don't be overly hard on yourselves, because even Paul, when he tried to preached to his own people from Acts 23, wasn't able to get them saved. Look at verse 12, please. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they killed Paul. Now, when you go through the Word of God, you find this term conspiracy, although it's not mentioned here directly, it will be the next verse, found on a handful of occasions. So, because we can trace this conspiracy back to the Old Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to find it still very much in evidence today. You've got a lot of people who are in academia, who reject the Word of God, who teach doctrines contrary to the Word of God, evolution being one of them, and they are part of this conspiracy. But it says here, after a certain day, certain of the Jews, Paul's own people, banded together and bound themselves under a curse. They've taken an oath, like Muslims do, and they call that a fatwa, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Paul was a real threat to Jewry. And yet all Paul wanted to do, like Jesus, like the Old Testament prophets, was to get them saved, was to bring them into a relationship with the Lord. But you see, if you are in organized religion, if you're in a system, 
if you are making a living off it and you feel threatened, if you think to yourself that there's a chance you could lose it, you're going to kick against it. Look at verse 13. And there were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. 13. Number 13 is synonymous with wickedness. 13 is synonymous with the occult. 13 is synonymous with being anti-God. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. I said last time that if you can rub along with the world indefinitely, if you can rub along with unsaved people all of the time, if you are able to be a perpetual friend of the world, something is wrong. And here Paul was far from being a friend of the world. Look at 14. And they came to chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. We want to kill him. 12. We put a conspiracy together. 13. We're going to slain him. Verse 14. Paul was being hunted. The hunter was being hunted. You reap what you sow. Look at 15. Now therefore, you with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him, and we, or ever we come near, are ready to kill him. You've got the council, the Sanhedrin, very much in the frame here, being part of this conspiracy. And this gets relayed back to uh, the chief captain. And he says to himself, what's going on here? I need to rescue Paul, because if I don't, they're going to step in and kill him. Jump over to 24. Look at verse 5, please. We have found this man, a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. Christ would tell you that he was a lord of the temple, lord of the Sabbath, a greater than Solomon, a greater than Jonah, denoting his deity, of course. Of course. And yet here, for we have found this man a pestilent fellow. There's a word again, a fellow, fella, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews. Now they're going to smear him throughout the world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. If you were a saved man or woman in the early church, you were considered to be part of a sect. And if you are saved today and are trying to win Catholics to the Lord, or Muslims, or Hindus in India or Pakistan, the chances are that they too think you are part of a sect, part of a false religion, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, not true, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. And yet they thought nothing of killing Stephen. They thought nothing of turning the Lord Jesus Christ over to Pilate. But here they want Paul to be put to death, no doubt, because they are more interested in the temple. They are more interested in, in religion. Their main love is religion. And this goes back to what I've said many a time, I'll say it again, that it's very easy to talk to God about men, but you try speaking to men about God. That separates the boys from the men. And that goes back to my 
Time in Croydon, as I was saying, people saying that we were preaching a negative message. No, we weren't. We were preaching a positive message. Christ told you to repent. And if you didn't repent, you would perish. This isn't a game. Christ preached on hell more times than heaven. Jump down to verse 14, please. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way, which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hoped toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. That's what this is all about, ultimately, the resurrection. Not Paul giving the gospel, which is somewhat interesting, but it's about the resurrection. But what is fascinating to me is verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, now watch it, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Old Testament, of course. So Paul is saying this, if you want to call me a heretic, fine, so be it. I'll wear it with a badge of honour. Because I have faith in the prophets, believing all things. Paul was a Bible believer, not an ecumenical apostate, which are written in the law and in the prophets. The Jewish Tanakh, of course, and have hope, 15, toward God. Which they themselves also allow that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Found from Daniel chapter 12. And again, he's seen himself that perhaps he can get his crowd saved. Perhaps he can win some allies. And the Pharisees will be somewhat uh, torn because they were of the same belief that there would be a general resurrection. Look at verse 20, please. Or else, let the same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me, while I stood before the council. Sanhedrin again, not a church conference, which again is evil. If you take the time to read all the references that deal with councils. 21. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm called in question by you this day. That's why I'm here, Paul is saying, although I think it was more than just the resurrection of the dead. He would preach that Christ was the one true God. He would preach that Christ was the Messiah. And he would preach that if you were not saved, if you hadn't believed on him, if you wouldn't believe on him, you were lost. And that's what infuriates most of the ecumenical churches today, the interfaith crowd. They want to have unity without truth. They want to get rid of John 14, 6 and Acts 4, 12 and uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 5. Look at verse 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Paul, you're going to go to royalty. Paul, you're going to suffer for me because you caused my people to suffer due to their faith in me. What you did to my people, now you, Paul, are going to experience. The hunter is being hunted. After certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Now, Felix was the governor of Judea, and Felix was, I think from memory, the successor to Pontius Pilate, who, according to tradition, committed suicide. 
and yet Pilate's wife Claudia seems to have been a secret Christian or a closet Christian or at least on the cusp of becoming a Christian and Claudia would tell Pilate whatever you do don't put this innocent man to death I've had many bad dreams this night concerning him and yet Pilate like most people today was weak spineless and Pilate was very much a politician or as we would say today a career clergyman professional pastor and he walked a fine line Pilate because his father-in-law was the emperor in Rome but here Felix has replaced Pilate and his wife Drusilla who was the youngest of King Agrippa's daughters so she is royalty married to a politician always a deadly mix <laughs> has now found herself with a husband in the presence of the greatest man that ever lived being Paul of course and they heard him concern the faith in Christ get the word of God out share the gospel and yet from my memory when I looked at this some weeks ago Drusilla was around 20 when she got involved with Felix and she was married to another man before he lured her away and he lured her away he was able to entice her away like his father would do to the mother of Salome see there are three Herods in the scriptures the first Herod is Herod the Great who was responsible for the death of all the innocents then he would die his son would replace him Archelaus and he was responsible for the interrogation detention of the Lord Jesus Christ and he was responsible for the death of John the Baptist and then the final King Agrippa which you'll read about um, I think it's in 25 or 26 my mind has gone somewhat blank uh, will be the final of the Herods but here you got this unholy union Felix and his very young wife who was married to somebody else before he got her to leave and also he was married to somebody else which is a picture of adultery look at 25 and he reasoned a righteousness temperance and judgment to come Felix trembled and answered go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season I will call for thee I bet he trembled this old filthy reprobate Felix trembled and answered go thy way when I have a convenient season when I have spare time I will call for thee he had no intention of calling for Paul Paul preached about temperance righteousness and judgment to come when was the last time you heard somebody preach about such things in the pulpits on the street perhaps never 26 he hoped also that money should have been given him a Paul that he might loose him wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him he thought Paul would pay money to be released he's picked the wrong man here this man is convicted this man is convicted over his sin this man is upset that Paul isn't preaching your best life now that Paul is preaching holiness and yet again Paul as far as I can ascertain from these verses isn't preaching the gospel per se although he's alluding to it he's coming pretty near to doing so but he's preaching primarily about the resurrection he's preaching about the hope that the Jews had but Felix trembled and answered from 25 go thy way for this time leave me get out of my sight when I have a convenient season I will call for thee and yet one more time he had no intention 
of ever speaking to Paul again. On top of that, this individual thought that Paul would give him money to be released. And yet Paul was there by the good pleasure of the Lord. Paul was there based on the sovereignty of the Lord. Paul was always in the will of the Lord. And that's why he could tell us from Romans chapter 8 how to those which are called, to those that are in Christ, uh, all things work together for good. Not some, but all things work together for good to those that are called, to those that are justified, to those that are sanctified. And therefore, whatever you go through, never have a meltdown. In fact, let me just quote that piece of scripture correctly. Uh, Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So whoever you are, whoever you are, sit tight. You are very much in the will of the Lord. If you are saved, of course. If you're not saved, you have no hope. You are completely cut off and are very much in need of a saviour. So there you are, a general overview of my study from Acts of the Apostles, looking at 22, 23, and 24. And I showed you that a person gets saved before they are baptised. A person gets saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, which the Lord sees. Uh, Romans chapter 4, justification, exoneration in the sight of God. And then once he gets saved, he gets baptized. Justification in the sight of man. James chapter 2. When Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him, he would tell his uh, servants that he would come back, that he would go and worship with his son and return later. That picture, on the one hand, Abraham's faith in the presence of his servants, but also that pictured Abraham's faith in the presence of his son, Isaac being a type of Christ and Abraham being a type of the Father. So God the Father and God the Son very much typified, or typified uh, back in the Old Testament with Abraham and Isaac. What it comes down to is this, that you are saved by grace, and you are kept saved by grace. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. And that's what infuriates so many people, the thought that they can't make it to heaven on their own, that they have to do something the thought that somebody would have to die in their place uh, being the only way to be saved for so many people is a great stumbling block. For the Greeks, for the Gentiles, it was and remains foolishness. And to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. The thought of unsaved Gentiles, unclean animals, taking their Messiah and putting them on a Roman cross was too much for them to bear. And yet that's what the Lord decided to do. And never forget also that Christ volunteered to come to earth, to die for the sins of the world. There's no other way to be reconciled unto the Lord. The Catholic Church can't do it. The Protestant Church can't do it. Muslims can't do it. Hindus and Sikhs can't do it. Freemasons can't do it. If you want to be saved, you've got to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and get, a, get an imputed righteousness. Get his precious blood put on your account. Wash in the blood, as the word of God speaks so clearly about being God's blood as well. From 22, 21, 22, the moment he mentions Gentiles, 
which for the Jews would be a picture of heathen, or I should, say, I should say a description of heathen, unclean, uncircumcised, dirty people. It was too much for them. Away with this man. It's not fit that this fellow should live. And therefore Paul is remained in custody and he finds himself in the presence of the council, verse 30, being the Sanhedrin, not a church council. There's no church council in the Word of God. In fact, if you go through church history, you find the Council of Laodicea, which was put together by Catholics, not Christians. You find the Council of Trent, which was put together by Catholics, not Christians. You find the Council of Trent, put together by Catholics, not Christians. Christians don't have councils. They had a conference in Acts chapter 15, a big difference. And therefore, when the term council is found in Scripture, look out. The chances are you're dealing with enemies of the cross. But 23, 1 down to 6, Paul has been detained. He's been assaulted. And his old nature retaliates like minded, and maybe yours has. And if it hasn't, it will one day. Just uh, keep on doing what you do. Keep pushing yourself. Keep going onto the streets, giving out tracks. And you will find your old nature sometimes getting the better of you. And yet you were told that you could do all things through Christ, which strengthens you. So you shouldn't allow your tongue to get the better of you. You should never be violent as well. And yet your old nature needs to be put down. And here Paul loses it, as they say. And when he's told that he's spoken to the high priest, he corrects himself. And that's a good thing to do. Never be too proud to correct yourself. And when I lost my temper in Croydon last month with that South African gentleman, I had to correct myself and apologize to my uh, friends that were present. And Paul does so, and yet I think it was too little too late because they'd made up their mind that he was no good, that he was poisonous, that he was a threat to their people, their religion. And yet Paul, to his credit, goes the extra mile. And he apologizes, which again takes a real man to do. But he's partly blinded, he doesn't know what's going on, he's losing his sight, and no one lays hands on Paul to help him out. His best friends couldn't help him out. And on top of losing his eyesight, from 2312 down to 15, a group of Jews have taken a curse, a fatwa, to put him to death. And this gets back to a man called Lysias, and he rescues Paul, and I guess these men must have starved to death because they didn't kill Paul, although Paul would die around 70 AD, or just before 70 AD, thanks to the sword of Nero, like John the Baptist. And of course, the emperors, the Roman emperors, very much picture the final Antichrist, who will also be beheading people during the Great Tribulation. But word gets back to Paul that a group have conspired to kill him, and Paul loved life also I should say. I don't think Paul was desperate to get back to heaven. Yes, he saw the third heaven, and he would tell you that he had seen things that he couldn't explain, he couldn't reveal, and yet people say that I've been to heaven and back. They say they've been to hell and back, and they say that they, they, and they will say they've seen this, or they've seen that, and they write their books, they sell their DVDs, and people pay a lot of money to get such an account relayed back to them. And yet Paul said, no, I couldn't even begin to tell you what I'd seen. I wasn't allowed to tell you what I'd seen or heard. I was told not to tell you what I'd seen or heard. It would fall to John the Apostle 30 years later to write down what God wanted him and all of us to see. 
So I think these people died, and as I say, Paul would be put to death uh, late in the 60s by uh, Nero for being a Christian, for being a true servant of the one true God. From 24, 5 to 6, the Jews think he is a mover of tradition. And I think up until 1964 in the UK, if you were found guilty of sedition in the UK, you could be put to death for that. It was a capital punishment. And that's what they are wanting to impress on the minds of their Gentile leaders, that he is a mover of sedition, a ringleader. Not the ringleader, a ringleader. There wasn't one man in, in charge of the early church. There were men that were in charge of the early church. Peter, James, Paul, probably John, the son of Zebedee. But they're more concerned about him profaning the temple, verse 6, which is incorrect, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. And yet they wanted the Romans to do it for them. They thought nothing of killing Stephen. In fact, they thought nothing of murdering Stephen. Let's call it what it is. Stephen was murdered. 14 down to 15, Paul is speaking, and he says, This I confess unto thee, that after the way, the early church, which they call heresy, Am I a heretic, he says? Were the early Christians part of a heretical movement? So worship I the God of my fathers. So be it, he says. And yet when we speak about heretics today, we speak about Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, or that apostate pastor from Croydon. And yes, I called him a heretic because he was diminishing the gospel. He was withholding the truth from the people in Croydon about how to be saved, and that is negligence. In fact, it's called malpractice in the uh, medical world. After the way, which they call heresy, okay, so worship I the God of my fathers. I don't care what they think, I'm going to push on anyway, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. If you are a saved person, and if you are on fire for the Lord, if you are serving him faithfully, you'll be called a fanatic. And if you are a saved person who isn't serving him, they will call you a hypocrite. You can't win either way. If you don't believe me, just try and wear two hats. It doesn't work. Either you are on fire for the Lord, or you are lukewarm. And therefore they're going to call you a hypocrite. And of hope toward God, which they themselves also allow. This crowd were religious, not secular. And your number one enemy, believe it or not, outside of the world, the devil and the flesh, will be religion. Organized religion. that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Whoever you are, whoever you are, one day you will die, and one day you will be resurrected. And if you're not saved, you'll be damned. And I will tell you that. And that's what I think a lot of these churches hate. People such as myself go into the streets and speak the truth to people. I level with people. I don't do it because I am some kind of a sadistic character. I do it because it's scriptural. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How can you fear the Lord until you realize that you are a sinner? Why would you fear the Lord if you didn't uh, know there was a hell? If there's no hell, why would you do what you do? If there's no everlasting hell, why go to church? Why read the Bible? Don't tell me to live a good life. Listen, before I was saved, I lived a pretty good life as far as the world was concerned. But my conscience bothered me. And on top of my conscience bothering me, I was then told, thanks to my father who got saved before me, that this book had all the answers. And I didn't know that. 
I grew up in a Catholic family, I went to church, Catholic schools, and yet I didn't realize, I didn't know who Jesus Christ was or what the Word of God was all about. And therefore, with my bad conscience wearing me down, which is why people come to the Lord, let's be quite honest, the church is a hospital. Until you come to the Lord, you're never going to get rest, are you? And yet there are people all over the world who are spending good money visiting their psychiatrist or their psychologist or their psychotherapist to get peace, to get joy. And Christ would tell you that the peace that he gives you is a supernatural peace. It passes all understanding. So here Paul is preaching about this resurrection of the just and the unjust. And they're not particularly interested. They've made their minds up anyway, which is the worst type of person to meet, somebody who's narrow-minded, somebody who's closed-minded, somebody who's a bigot, somebody who wants to persecute you. And yet, if you can remain cool, if you can keep it together, you should do so. Don't lose your temper like I did, because if you do, you will dishonor the Lord. And yet I will say this, you can call a spade a spade. And I did a sermon in London last month on the subject of domestic violence. I was asked to speak about this very emotive subject, and I spoke about a chap during that message who I'm told is a pastor of a charismatic church, and when his relative was in need of his help because she was being beaten by her husband and her child was witnessing some of the abuse and was also being abused physically, I should also say, this pastor, quote-unquote, had no interest in helping this save woman whatsoever or her young son. He said to her, it's your own fault, you married him, you made your bed so lie in it, and he pretty much told her in no uncertain terms to go back to the family home and put up with this individual. And I said to myself, when I heard that, what a terrible, what a terrible account to hear. What a coward, what an imbecile, what a moron. What an apostate. And people say, that's pretty hard language, James. Well, that's okay. Jesus Christ called Herod a fox. Paul the Apostle would say that the Galatians were fools. Say people, and yet they were fools. So I think sometimes we need to speak uh, more boldly. So I have no qualms when it comes to speaking about such people, and I will use uh, biblical language, apostates, heretics, because the Word of God allows me to do so. But what you will never hear me do is use four-letter words. That's never acceptable. And if you ever do come out with four-letter words, confess it to the Lord. Because that comes according to James chapter 2 or James chapter 3 from the devil. And that's right, the devil can get saved people to do some pretty wicked things. On top of that, your old nature is never far off. 24 down to 27, and I'll conclude. After certain days, Felix, excuse me, with his wife, Drusilla, a young, beautiful woman, uh, comes into contact with Paul, and Paul gets a chance to witness to this adulterous couple. They had no grounds for remarriage, and that goes back to what I just said a few moments ago, that if you are in a marriage, and if you are being abused physically, you can seek refuge, you should seek refuge, and this sister in the Lord uh, was denied refuge from her own family and from her own church. And it fell to some good friends of our ministry, a good saved couple, to take her and her child into their home. And she was there for some weeks, and I thank the Lord for them. And I put the case, and I'll put it very briefly again on camera now, that if he, this man who was 
abusing her, who isn't saved, if he was to divorce her, I don't think she should be punished. I don't think she should remain a perpetual uh, divorcee. On top of that, if such a person like her has children, and she does, I don't think it's fair to say to her, well, your husband has gone, on, gone off and remarried and had children with his second or third wife and has no intention to come back to you. I don't think it's fair to then say to this poor sister that she can't remarry. It wasn't her fault the marriage broke down. He abused her, she didn't abuse him. He abused her son, she didn't abuse her son. He walked out on her, and if he wants to sue her, and if he wants to divorce her, then let him do so. And I put it to you this morning that such a sister is at liberty to remarry, but of course only in the Lord. But, he, but here Paul reasons of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. I would love to have seen that. Felix trembled. When was the last time you caused somebody to tremble? When was the last time you got in someone's face and caused them to tremble? When was the last time you went up to somebody and said, unless you repent, you're going to burn? Have you ever done that? For Paul, it's no big deal. He did it regularly. And he says to Paul, go thy way for this time. Get out of my presence. You're bothering me. I love my sin more than the Lord. When I have a convenient season, a free moment, I will call for thee. And yet, like his father, who got some sadistic kick listening to John the Baptist, nevertheless he went on and put John the Baptist to death. But it won't fall to this group of individuals, Felix or Festus or Agrippa, from 25-26, to put Paul to death. It will fall to Nero. And that's what Paul would tell you from the next few chapters, which I'll look at next time, how he wanted to go to Rome and speak about his beliefs, so on and so forth, and 26, how he hoped all that money should have been given him of Paul. This is incredible. He just preached the gospel, or almost. He's just preached holiness, righteousness, and judgment to come. And this individual, this sinner, dead from neck up, had no idea what was going on. Much like most people in the world today, and he thinks somewhat Foolishly, that Paul might give him money. He might bribe him. He might pay his way out of this detention. Wherefore he sent him the oftener, more than one occasion, and communed with him. But 27, but after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. He's bound. He's going nowhere. And yet Paul is very much in his element, Paul is as cool as a cucumber, and Paul will preach the gospel. He will preach his beliefs in the one true God. He will put a defense up as to what uh, it is to be a Christian, because you were told to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So there you are, a pretty uh, substantial overview. I wasn't sure how much time it would take to do this morning. It is incredibly hot as I stand here this morning. I think it's about 30 degrees or thereabouts. So what's that, 90 degrees or? But it's very hot, but praise the Lord, it's a good day. It's a great day to be saved and it's a great day to be a Bible believer. So I will say every blessing to you all. Uh, keep us in prayer as we continue Acts the Apostles and keep us in prayer uh, for August when yours truly starts to work through Revelation, 22 chapters, and I can't wait to get to the book of Revelation. But uh, I think that's about all for now. So every blessing, the Lord bless you all, and Maranatha.